Welcome to the ITSP Magazine Podcast Network. You are about to listen to the Getting Technology Right Ethics and Technology Podcast with Dr. Kevin Magnish. Get ready for a conversation about global values and technology, diversity and inclusion, discrimination, transparency in data, privacy, and cybersecurity. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. Hello, and welcome to Getting Tech Right, the podcast about ethics and technology. My name is Kevin McNish, and with me today is Dr. Jim Baxter, a philosopher from the Interdisciplinary Centre for Ethics at the University of Leeds. Jim, hi. Hi, Kevin. So, Jim, tell, tell me a little bit about your background, how you got into, because I know you are a trained philosopher, but you also head up the consulting work at the Idea Centre at Leeds. So tell me a little bit about your background, how you got into philosophy and um, how you got into the consulting world. Sure. So um, the way I got into philosophy was like most people, I did it as an undergraduate degree um, at the University of Sheffield uh, and then kind of came out of that and like a lot of people didn't really know what to do next <laughs> um, and ended up spending well actually it ended up being almost 10 years in a variety of jobs so I went and, and lived abroad for a year teaching English um, came back and was a, a project manager in um, online learning uh, for a few years did a year as a copy editor and proofreader uh, and then um, basically saw a job advertised at the University of Leeds at something called the Idea Centre um, as a consultant in applied ethics. And basically, that's the only time, um, you know, before or since that I've seen a job advertised that wasn't a kind of traditional lectureship, uh, but which required um, a philosophy degree. So I kind of mm-hmm. leapt at the chance. <laughs> so it sounded really interesting and kind of, and 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 went from there, really. So. Yeah, so I had a a few years between my undergraduate degree and then getting that job. And then um, once I was in that role, you know, found it really, really interesting and just wanted to stick with it um, and uh, went back to study at the same time. So went and studied for a master's part time uh, and then followed that straight up with a PhD part time. So that, you know, obviously doing it part time takes a while. uh, finished the PhD in, ooh, would it have been something like 2017, I want to say. I think that's probably right. Um, and yeah, so I'm now, I'm employed full-time as a consultant in applied ethics at the Idea Centre, which is the Interdisciplinary Ethics Applied Centre at the University of Leeds. Um, and that's still very unusual, I think, um, for a an academic to be working full time as a consultant. I don't know, not just in philosophy, actually, I don't know anybody else at, at, at the university who has that kind of role. It's still it's still very unusual. I mean, academics quite often do consulting, but generally it's um, somebody who has a traditional kind of teaching and research role doing a bit of 
consulting in their spare time and it tends to be you know in engineering or the medical school or something like that where there's kind of obvious applications for people's research and they and they will do you know a certain amount of consulting where they're applying that research um in the real world so yeah i feel very lucky that i've got this job so it's not just me that does the consulting by the way we've got a small team um i'm the only one who works full-time on consulting though the others are on lectureship and teaching contracts and actually full disclosure we should say that you're you used to be one of those people right so we're indeed, former colleagues indeed. at the idea center yeah. <laughs> yes yes was well, yeah going to get on to that because of course we we first met before i worked at the idea center on the master's course um because yeah. we uh, yeah started that off so i was actually thinking right. as you were saying there you know I, I think of part-time doctorates and part-time part-time doctorates in particular as taking forever and yet we started mm. on the masters at the same time in 2009 was it oh uh, 2008 I think that sounds about right so it was around about then and I, I got my doctorate in 2013 <clears throat> sorry so you you were only four years later than me despite doing both of them part-time so <laughs> right, okay. well, it some. felt like a long time <laughs> yeah it I'm felt sure. like a long time yeah so it, it was Two years to do that master's. Yes, I think that's right. 2008, 2010. And then I went and actually as part of the master's course, this is probably too much detail, but as part of the master's course, you have to do like a PhD preparation mm -hmm. module. Um, so yeah. I was kind of planning what I was going to do for my PhD and then did the PhD. It took me about six and a half years. And then I actually, having done the PhD, um, I got um, some interest from a publisher to, to publish a book based on the PhD or largely based on the PhD. And so kind of went straight from the PhD into revising it for that, when, which mm. involved quite a lot of rewriting and stuff. So and th this was, by the way, it was on the topic of the moral responsibility of psychopaths. So that was what my kind of major research project was. So as a result, I kind of ended up thinking about psychopaths for it, nearly 10 years which probably isn't healthy, but that's the way it, that's just the way it turned out. <laughs> but one of those instances about how fascinating philosophy can be <laughs> in allowing yeah. you to pursue something that's quite obscure, but really quite interesting. Yeah, definitely. It was one of those PhD topics that when uh, when people ask you what your PhD is about, you know, they're expecting not to be interested in the reply. But I, I remember having a few conversations where people were like, oh, right. OK, yeah, that does sound interesting. <laughs> so Absolutely. But, but you yeah, so you went from your master's and you came and worked uh, as a consultant at the Idea Centre and then mm -hmm. you went you went off to the University of Twente. Right. And then and yeah. from there to South Yeah. So, so could you say a bit about your yeah, your sort of career path? Yeah, sure. So, well, like, like you, um, started out with the undergrad in philosophy uh, a long time back. I was at the University of Leeds um, and I actually went to work for the British government for GCHQ, which is the UK equivalent of NSA, uh, for about six years before coming back to philosophy. Um, and as we just said, doing the Masters the same time you did and then moving on to doing the PhD at the Idea Centre uh in leeds where i focused on ethics and surveillance which was my interesting area it, originally it was completely by chance uh it wasn't designed to come off the back of the work which i'd been doing but it was a happy coincidence that the two kind of came together in that way uh then when i graduated from the doctorate i stayed on at the idea center in precisely one of those uh consultant come lecturer positions that you were talking about where i was doing consultancy for around I don't know, 30, 40% of my time lecturing for 40% and 
admin for about 50%, I think, because that's how I remember <laughs> it anyway. Um, yeah. <laughs> and uh, and then, yes, then I went over to, to the University of Twente in the Netherlands, uh, largely because in the UK, the ethics of technology is not an area that's been very well researched or engaged with traditionally. And I think one of the nice things about IDEA uh, at Leeds was that we did a lot of work with engineers and computer scientists. But otherwise, it was a fairly niche topic, whereas in the Netherlands, the philosophy department, certainly at Twente, Delft, Wageningen um, and, and uh, Eindhoven, all focus on ethics and technology. So you have about 80 to 100 philosophers over there that are just working on philosophy and technology. So it's a very lively area to get into that. Yeah. And then, and then, as you say, come the pandemic, um, I was back in the UK. I was very nearly stranded in the Netherlands uh, while my family was here in the UK, but managed to avoid that and felt it was yeah, increasingly time to move back here. Uh, so looked around for work. And as you said in your your bit, Jim, it's not often it's not not often you can find jobs which require a philosophy background in them yeah. so you tend to leap at the chance when you do and it just so happened that Sopristeria was setting up a digital ethics consultancy at the time i think the uh, it would have been in its early stages for about a year and they were advertising for somebody to come and join them so i interviewed and and started working with them two and a half years ago and then since the end yeah it's been a solid consultancy since <laughs> Brilliant. And we'll talk a bit about um, the kind of consultancy work that we've been doing and our, mm. our approaches to that consultancy work in a bit. But we wanted to talk first of all about the podcast. So, yeah, uh, I guess just by coincidence, really, we've both ended up setting up a, a podcast in our, our respective roles. And uh, we were talking about before um, starting this recording, and it sounds like actually what we're trying to get out of those podcasts is kind of similar in, in a way. Mm. So, but yours is is obviously um, much more specifically focused on the ethics of technology, whereas uh, mine is uh, uh, more general than that. Uh, but can you say a bit about, about um, yeah, what prompted you to to start a podcast and what are you trying to do with it? Yeah, sure. So I mean, in, in some ways, the podcast, the, the motivation for me personally was it's a great way of keeping in touch with a load of friends essentially um, <laughs> and keeping in touch with what's going on at the cutting edge of ethics and technology because it, it keeps progressing and it's very easy in the role i'm in to sort of step back from some of that academic research that's going on right now because you know a, a lot of my clients that i work with they, they don't care what a kantian interpretation on <laughs> um surveillance would be for example yeah uh, but that doesn't mean it's not interesting and that it couldn't be helpful to read about that down the line so it's very interesting to sort of keep a hand in what's going on in academia and i think likewise there's a lot of interesting stuff going on in academia which tends to stay in those academic circles you know we, we within the academic world you get promoted by publishing academic articles by publishing books um and and although it's starting to increase in the uk that there's a little bit there around impact and getting your work out into the general public there's not a huge amount of weight put on it so one of the things i wanted to do is help to sort of create a bridge between some of that academic work that's going on and what's happening in industry and sort of general practice and to see how the two could interact a little bit better yeah great 
Yeah, and how about yourself? Because I say that that is very much from the technology and ethics perspective, as you say, because I think that's an area that's just exploding at the moment and has been for a few years, and I can't see slowing down. But no. yours, I know you've talked about um, ethics and robots on yours. I really enjoyed that episode. But right. um, <laughs> where, where's where's ethics untangled coming from? And what's again, what's your motivation? Well, really, I mean, it, the motivation, I think, for me personally is, well, on a personal level. So as you said, it's kind of a good way of keeping up with friends. For me, it's a good way of getting to know new people is mm. part of it. Uh, actually, some of Quite a lot of the interviewees have been people who I know already who are based either in the centre or, or kind of in the university generally. But I've also had the opportunity to talk to, you know, a really wide range of really interesting philosophers and a couple of non-philosophers on um, some really interesting topics. Um, I suppose as an academic, one of the advantages of it is that you get a little bit outside your comfort zone so you can end up being very specialized so there's a kind of yeah as i said i've spent a lot of time thinking about psychopaths and moral responsibility <laughs> so you know i could kind of plow my own little furrow thinking about responsibility and to an extent I'm, I'm kind of doing that but um i think there's a huge uh advantage to actually getting out there and reading much more widely and the podcast oh, has been a real prompt to do that uh, because you know I have to kind of ask credible questions of somebody so that we can get a 45 minute interview out of them or whatever it is uh, which involves reading their work thinking about it thinking about what I might ask them about it and then you know engaging with them so mm. as a result I kind of got into some areas that I probably wouldn't have thought about or certainly wouldn't have thought about otherwise um, oh, and it is really wide-ranging so yeah as you say that we've had an episode on um whether humans and robots can be friends um, and there will be other episodes with a kind of technological focus but um, there are also well I'm trying to remember which ones we've put out and which ones I've just recorded now but <laughs> we, by, the time, uh, by the time this one comes out I'm sure there'll be many more there'll out be loads there, so. more yeah <laughs> so our first episode was on um, social media and how we should behave mm -hmm. online and um, so it was kind of looking at what goes wrong on social media platforms and why do people end up at each other's throats and behaving yeah. badly and so on and and what are our responsibilities and how can we how can we make things better um so i think that was a really good example of the kind of subject that i'm looking for really for ethics untangled because it's um it's uh, a, a really general interest so kind of everybody who has a social media account encounters these kinds of issues and wants to think about them um but it's something that uh, i think philosophy can contribute something to because there's been work on things like well you know we, we all say we're in echo chambers but the kind of thing a philosopher can do is really analyze what an echo chamber is mm. and what are the normative ethical implications of being in an echo chamber um yeah. and you know so casting a, a slightly different light on it I think that, that people might not have, have thought about otherwise um so yeah it's the idea is you're always kind of trying to find that balance between it being a topic that's of general interest but also having some depth on it uh, without it getting too technical so I'm kind mm. of often asking uh, philosophers to just kind of explain what they meant by you know 
whatever whatever word they've just used so that it can be um understandable by by a general audience so we want it to be definitely challenging so we're obviously not you know we're not simplifying really mm. the work but we're just trying to explain it in plain language so that yeah. people can understand it no, yeah excellent funnily enough the first the first episode from uh, the Getting Tech Right podcast was also on social media, so oh, was it right? Yeah, <laughs> demonstrates the crossover <laughs> just uh, just even more. So yeah, excellent. I'll give that a listen. Yeah, <laughs> great. Right. So we were going to go on, I think, and talk about about just our experience as well as consultants and yes. how that looks being being trained as academics, but being involved in consultancy. It's not as we've already said. It's not a standard sort of career path or at least it traditionally yeah. hasn't been it might it might in, increase um so so i suppose let's start off with what what's your experience been and how would you describe your approach to consulting so um our experience has been um well we kind of had to go from a standing start really when we started mm -hmm. way back in 2006 uh, and so we were kind of thinking on our feet about what kind of project we might be able to do and how we might be able to add value what kinds of clients we would want to be working with um, and it's been a really interesting learning experience as we've gone along um, certainly for um, quite a, a large proportion of that time what we found is that um, one of the uh, markets that's that's been most conducive to our, our kind of work has been professional bodies so we've mm. done a lot of work in a variety of different professions um, so um, you'll obviously remember from when you were there we were doing a lot of work in engineering and we're still doing work in the engineering sector we've done quite a lot of stuff in financial services um, including research for uh, the organization that used to be called the Banking Standards Board is now called the Financial Services Conduct Board so looking at the ethics of professionalization and in banking whether pro the professional model is the way for banks to um, improve uh, standards of culture and conduct and so on mm -hmm. um, and then there's just been uh, we, we do a lot of work with the actuaries the Institute and Faculty of Actuaries they're a, a great client for us and uh, you know some really interesting partnership work we've done with them um insurance but then we've also done things like intellectual property law ecology and financial management we've done loads of work for the chartered surveyors the royal institute of chartered surveyors so it's ended up being quite broad in terms of the different professions we've worked with um but yeah professional ethics has been a huge mm -hmm. a huge thing for us um, and within that, it's kind of fallen into two broad types of projects. So it's either been, well, I suppose, continuing professional development and training and other kind of uh, initiatives around embedding and operationalizing principles in mm. people's work. So whether that's through CPD or through you know, developing guidance or helping people, helping organisations to develop a code of ethics or to review an existing code of ethics and think and help them think about how to implement that code of ethics so that it can be as effective as possible. Um, so that kind of area. And then the other area has been applied commissioned research projects. Um, so the, the project that I mentioned for 
the Banking Standards Board, it ended up being a big mixed methodology project where it was combining philosophical work where we're kind of, I suppose, working with concepts. So thinking about, you know, concepts like professionalism and, and how those end up being um, interpreted and applied um, and combining that with empirical research. So we did uh, surveys and focus groups and one to one interviews uh, with well, people in the different banks, but also kind of other stakeholders in the banking sector, like mm. the uh, the Bank of England, the regulators and so on. Um, and so it's kind of people coming to us with a specific question that they want answering and us using a variety of different approaches and methodologies to answer that question, really, which is kind of it's slight. it's kind of similar in some ways, like there are things that we can draw on in terms of the philosophical research that we do as philosophers. Um, but the approach is very different in that mm -hmm. we're not just kind of sitting there thinking, well, that's an interesting question. Let's spend a few months <laughs> yeah. thinking about that question. <laughs> it's a it's a question which is of kind of pressing importance to some organization or other. And they've come to us with that question mm -hmm. and wanted us to answer it. Um, so, yeah, so there's been a few projects like that. Another one was with um, the institution of, sorry, Institute Chartered Accountants in England and Wales, looking at what integrity means for organisations mm -hmm. and how organisations can go about getting more integrity um, and promoting and encouraging integrity in their staff. And there's been a few others. We've done some work in the NHS. I'm, I'm just, mm -hmm. yeah, I'm rambling now. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so th th those kinds of things, really. And we're also we're increasingly now talking to, I suppose, to kind of businesses and, and organisations mm. other than professional bodies and starting to think about um, helping people to uh, operationalise ethics. And there, there are, mm. well, there's a, at least one project we've got on at the moment where that's um in a similar area to where you've been working i suppose where we're helping an organization think about uh data ethics and um how to um well what are what are the issues that arise for that organization in the use of data what are the ethical principles that are going to help them to do that in an ethical way uh, and how to actually implement and operationalize those principles um yeah so so how does that differ from the kind of work that you've been doing Kevin yeah that's well well I think you know to start with where you finished um that question around operationalization is, mm. is the key one isn't it really mm. um you know I I've been working in AI ethics now for about well depending on when you count my start um something like 13 years in mm. some respects and I would say that the sort of the standard philosophical questions about what's important in AI in terms of mm. what are the principles that should be underpinning ethical AI, they've been pretty well established now for at least six, if not eight or more years. Right. Um, but the question has moved on a lot to, well, OK, we all know that AI needs to and not far off what, what you know, you've been doing with um, codes of conduct. We all know that an AI should be transparent or that it should be fair or whatever. But the yeah. question is, what does that actually mean in practice? Yeah. How do you 
make that happen. Now, obviously, we're quite a bit younger than than you are in terms of the uh, age of the, the, the organisation around ethics consultancy. But I think the things we've had have been, yes, again, clients coming to us. Um, in, in many cases, it's in terms of working out the ethical thing to do from from two perspectives one in terms of risk management how do we make sure we don't do something ethically stupid uh, mm -hmm. which is going to get us a really bad reputation or lose us customers or, or whatever um, or or employees actually uh, yeah. and the other one has been how do we boost people's trust in what we're doing so yes. they are prepared to give us their data they are prepared to maintain a relationship with us and so on so we've worked with one of the big four high street banks in the uk when they had um they had a new vision and strategy and they had a data strategy um, for those two reasons they said they wanted to develop a data ethics strategy as well wow. so we kind of came in did a lot of work with them both internally and externally. So looking at customers as well as looking at the internal culture of the bank um, to see how were they operating, um, what principles did they have on paper, what principles did they have in practice, what were the ethical values that were being lived out in the organization, um, and then how could we weave in an ethics strategy uh, for them so that they could take that forward. Uh, in another case uh, where we worked with the government department, that was more a matter of them coming to us and saying um, that they had questions around accessibility, yeah. uh, which is which was not something I originally thought of as being right. a sort of ethics area, but it right. really is. And so much of what we've covered with that has not been the technical problems about accessibility, what screen reader do you use, do you use mm. dictation software or what, what font size do you use on a presentation? It's been more about looking at processes and looking at social problems within an organisation of what, what are the cultures, how do the cultures compare with each other? So does security and um, disability get along with each other or are there clashes? Mm. Um, is it is it transparent and easy as to how somebody goes about requesting a screen reader or dictation software right, right. or whatever else and, and sometimes those things really aren't and while an organization can shout from the rooftops that they're very accessibility friendly when you yeah, dig yeah. into the weeds and you find out well actually a lot of the disabled people are choosing to leave the organization because right. it's not that right. disability friendly that's something they want to know and <laughs> they want right. to hear about how to redress that and how to help that. So th those are a couple of sort of recent things we've done, which I think have been really stimulating for me. Um, yeah. Trust, again, just keeps coming up as a big one. And in some ways, I find mm. people who find the word ethics a bit scary because they're worried that you're going to judge them. <laughs> um, yeah. Find the term trust to be a, a much easier way into right. that conversation. Because it's, it's not about telling somebody, oh, you're being unethical, you're doing the wrong thing. It is, as I said, going back to that, that notion of risk management, saying just like with your security, just like with the pay you give to your employees, how you carry out your work has risk. Mm -hmm. And yeah. if you are being unethical about that or if you are not being purposefully ethical, then that risk increases significantly. And mm. so it's just simply a way of asking the questions that an organization may not otherwise be thinking about asking to try and diffuse and mitigate and, and ideally just avoid some of those risks happening in the first place.
Right. And I suppose that point about trust is a way of, well, it, it, it demonstrates why this isn't just about compliance, right? This isn't just about legal and regulatory compliance, which I think, I don't know whether this is your experience as well, but kind of in the past, I've had the sense that there's been a bit of complacency and a bit of, well, compliance obviously is really important as a huge industry in mm. itself. And just a, a bit of a sense that, well, if you're complying with the rules, you're going to be okay. But of course, there are plenty of ways of, you know, being within the letter of the law, but still losing the trust of your own customers or your employees or, or whatever it might yeah. be. Right? Well, abs absolutely. I mean, there are all sorts of things like lying, um, cheating on a committed partner or sort of sort of areas which we don't say are illegal, but we do think are unethical. Mm -hmm. And they've been broadly thought to be unethical mm -hmm. in, in all sorts of areas. So, yeah, mm -hmm. I mean, you're right. And looking across sort of the jobs that get advertised, the ones which I see coming up all the time are ethics and compliance officers. Yeah. And when I read through the job descriptions, it's all compliance. Right. And yet, when we went out a year ago and interviewed um, the British public about their views on trust and trust with the UK government, one of the questions we asked was, do you think the government should do more than meet the legal minimum requirements to protect people's data? Uh, and that was the mm. largest positive response. Seven zero, seventy percent mm. of people said, yes, the government should go above and beyond the legal minimum, yeah. which says that there is a huge expectation um that the, the legal minimum which is already pretty tight um, yeah. is not enough and they expect organizations the government to go above and beyond that yes and i was going to say like you say that is one area where the law and the regulation is particularly tight the mm. whole area of kind of privacy and data protection and security and so on yeah you can contrast that with things like fairness and bias where actually yeah. there isn't very much regulation really and uh, although not but, but not yet <laughs> not yet no sure because i think the ai act is going to be a very interesting experience yeah. there at least within at least within fairness within um again algorithmic sort of artificially intelligent systems mm. whether that that broaden out I don't know but it's one of those issues that's being wrestled with at the moment I think is what exactly does fairness mean and what does it look like but one of the interesting things that the AI Act is going to bring in um, is that uh, there will now be an, uh, an ethics or an AI impact assessment as part of it and part of that impact assessment needs to look at the impact on human rights of the algorithm or the the piece of uh, tech that you're using and i think that brings in some really interesting challenges there in much in much sort of less clear ways than happens with gdpr and data mm. yeah okay yeah um and do you get the impression that um the public is kind of increasingly aware and increasingly concerned about those other issues aside from privacy and consent and so on yeah well yeah i think again some of the research we've been doing with people and it's funny you're bringing this up because i don't think of us as doing a huge amount of research at Soprasteria. usually right. it's just going out and speaking to people but mm. we have sort of latched onto this area of trust in the past couple of years and been doing some work here right um and the the latest one we did and we've not published this yet we're still going through the raw data but we thought let's just see what sort of an impact the 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 recent 
scare stories around chat GPT and AI have had on the public. And I can't remember the statistics off the top of my head, but quite a significant number of people who have heard of chat GPT um, and AI generally are worried about the future of humanity as a result of that. Yeah. Which I find bizarre personally, because I think an awful lot of the talk around that is so overhyped. Um, but, you know, the letters written by Elon Musk and others coming out saying this threatens humanity has really struck a chord with some people. Right. And, and some people are genuinely scared about this. And so yes. I think that is something which needs to be taken seriously. And, and while we can sort of take a... Uh, it, it, those in technology, I think, can take a superior view of saying, well, we know really it's not going to be that, you know, it's not that serious yeah. or anything like that. Again, if we're talking about trust and how people approach these things, right. then that's going to be crucial. That's right. But I also wonder if those kind of more apocalyptic warnings maybe detract from some of the more sort of meat and potatoes ethical issues that are being raised by by these advances in technology i mean you don't have to worry that like skynet is around the corner to think that there are things that we should be concerned about um you know more kind of practical everyday things that that are raised by things like chat gpt that do need to be thought about right yeah ab absolutely um no i think i think you're spot on there because yes and, and the idea of taking six months off just in order to um work out what the ethics should be well okay. <laughs> we've been sort of struggling with this for quite some time is an interesting <laughs> one um but um yeah i mean chat gpt already has come out with issues around bias um bard the google alternative has had problems as well i mean so much so that alphabet lost 10 percent of its share value in a week um, when right. bard came out um and yeah i think you know bias and fairness issues are coming up a lot with those and not to mention the the legality of how they've been created in the first place because right. they've been developed by scraping the internet yeah. so your doctorate and my doctorate have probably gone in to inform yeah. what comes out of chat gpt <laughs> and yet neither of us were asked for permission uh, and there's no, according to GDPR, there was no lawful basis for them yeah. to have done that. So yeah. I know I've had people on, on my podcast sort of saying that they're just waiting for the law, the law cases to start piling up against these things. And I've heard reasons <laughs> that's why Bard isn't available in Europe at the moment. Um, it's those legal concerns. Right, so, right. And, and just one, one more thought, one which I a sort of go to example, which I have about problems of bias and fairness uh, is what is known. And you look it up on YouTube as the racist soap dispenser, yes. which was a company that came out with an automated soap dispenser. You put your hand underneath it. It spits soap into your hand if you're white. If you're mm. not white, if you've got black skin, brown skin, then you put your hand underneath it and the amount of light reflection isn't sufficient for the dispenser to recognize that your hand is there and it doesn't mm. spit out any soap it's a really stupid thing and it could have just mm. been so easily overlooked by having a diverse workforce on the mm. team that's building it um by thinking to go out and test it <laughs> against a mm. diverse group of people and it was just overlooked and so that, that's kind of indicative of some of the problems which I think are, are really underlying these the, the yeah. technology that we have is people just not thinking that extra step to make mm. it 
aware about all the potential users and um, and how it's going to affect people in society. So that's, yes. that's really the important thing to try and come out with, not, as you say, these existential threats to humanity. Yeah, because that can be <laughs> kind of paralysing, really, can't it? Because you kind of think, well, how are we going to, you know, it's either we pull the plug on them or, or we just kind of submit to our AI overlords. Um, yeah. Whereas yeah. actually, the, you know, there are some, yeah, so there, there's more pressing kind of concerns that we we need to address right now. Um, mm. But I suppose, yeah, one one thought that that prompted what you just said is that the answer to these things is maybe not just a kind of, you know, a, a, cha a change to people's decision makings but sometimes it's a it has to be a change to like who's making the decisions and who's involved in the decisions right so it's not yeah. just kind of saying think more about x and less about y it's about it's about actually kind of diversifying your workforce and making sure that a, a diverse range of viewpoints are represented in the actual decision making process as well absolutely i mean we've all got blind spots mm. and being a, a white middle-aged male, um, I appreciate that society is very well organised around people like me. So yeah. I probably have more blind spots than many. Um, yeah. I remember when I was teaching ethics at Leeds to engineers and coming across the sighting of um, landfill uh, mm. sites, um, which tended to always be around the poor areas of town. Right, and yeah. So when it comes to pollution in water um, and water things, that tends to affect the poorer areas of towns. Uh, I remember with if you look at the, the subway map of D.C., mm. it's a great diamond and, and it looks really neat and everything else. But then if you try to get anywhere in Georgetown, you find out that the close like the University of Georgetown is a 20 minute walk from the nearest subway station. Right. Uh, because while it, it's all done topographically in this really nice diamond, in, in actual fact, the closest subway stop is miles away from Georgetown. Right. And the story I was told was because it was a wealthy area. And when they were building the subway, the rich people said, we don't want a subway underneath our houses. Um, right. We don't want the noise and the disturbance. Um, it'd be interesting to know how much that's true of the London Underground as well or, or, or other places. So I think, yeah, some of those issues are just kind of um, yeah, interesting to grapple with uh, and see what's going on there. Yeah. Um, and that's an opportunity for me to plug one of our, our interviewees. Mm -hmm. So we've got somebody called Meredith Broussard, who's going to be an interviewee on Ethics Untangled. Um, whether that'll have gone out by the time this episode goes out or whether it'll be coming soon, I'm not sure. But yeah, she's got a really interesting perspective on uh, fairness in technology mm -hmm. and diversity. Um, and yeah, so kind of things to say about what fairness actually consists in. So it's quite kind of philosophically interesting but also you know a practical challenge to organizations to yeah yeah be and a thank bit you fairer that. and a bit more diverse in, in the, their approach yeah but it, that, that reminds me about the point mm. of your question as well which sorry i kind of drifted ah. off and forgot the question so i'm used to asking <laughs> them rather than answering them <laughs> but yeah coming coming back to those points it's only when you speak to those people who are affected um, yeah. that you get to find out what those challenges are Right. And so that's that's the argument for the diversity. So the, those issues to which I'm blind, um, somebody who is black or somebody who lives in a poorer area of a town or whatever is going to be much more aware of those issues than I am. Mm -hmm. And so while I may think, well, this thing is perfectly fair and perfectly um, you know, equitable, it's only when you speak to people who are not like me that I find out, OK, that's not actually the case. And so my assumptions are, are wrong, essentially. Yeah.
Okay. Good. Um, well, we're probably getting towards the point where we might yes. want to draw things to a close. But uh, I suppose my final question to you was, um, what um, are your kind of priorities for the future? What are you trying to achieve, and, and and what would you, where would you like to be in a few years' time with either the podcast or the consulting or both, really? Oh wow! Um, with the podcast, I mean, it's, it's interesting. We're we're just currently going through a five-year strategic review at the moment at work, yeah. so okay. um, I could I could to some degree talk about that with the podcast um i would be thrilled if it's still going um, yeah. that we have a good audience um of committed people who are engaging with the podcast i suppose and, and writing emailing in and um sharing topics that they would be interested in hearing about and um and yes ju just those areas of technology that are coming up because i think well the world has been full of chat GPT for the last six months. There's going to be something new next year. We're seeing increased facial recognition. We're seeing increased Internet of Things and sensors um, mm -hmm. developing. So really interested to see where that goes and how that impacts on people. So that's where I'd like to go with the podcast, with the work. I just think, you know, my, my goal is, is obviously up. Um, I think there is more work coming in the digital ethics space more people are getting that this is important um and as i say legislation like gdpr and particularly the ai act is going to see that developing further so I, I think that as a field it will become more and more established kind of in the way that data protection officers have become an established thing in the in the post gdpr world right so that's where i i, I can see it moving at the moment and and I'm going to throw that one back at you then, Jim, <laughs> and ask you the same. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, yeah, both so, ethics untangled and the work. Yeah. Yeah. Again, in terms of the podcast, yeah, I think that I don't have much to add to what you said. Really, it, it just it would be good to for it to keep going. Um, and I, I, there's every sign that it will do. I'm having mm -hmm. no trouble finding interviewees actually, which is which is right. great. I wasn't sure how easy it was going to be to persuade people to come on a podcast, but there, mm. um, there's there's plenty of people who are who. Are, who are up for doing that so that's great so i just want to kind of keep uh diversifying the range of topics that we cover and mm -hmm. um, keep building the audience for the podcast obviously uh, and like you say yeah it, it would be good um to have people engage with the subjects and kind of come back to us um with their thoughts on on things that they've heard on the podcast and questions and so on and maybe you know follow up on some topics that we've had with with further podcasts where we kind of go into more depth in in one area or, or other so yeah that's that's the podcast and in terms of the consulting um yeah we just want to keep having an impact really so um i think you kind of said a bit about um impact and uh you know the way academics are measured on mm. their research outputs and uh, to an extent on the impact that they can have as a result of their research. So, I mean, it's actually the emphasis on, on impact is increasing and mm -hmm. um, it's it's not something that philosophers kind of, as a rule, find very easy um, to do. So, you know, um, if you're working on, you know, some abstruse area of metaphysics or whatever, it's quite difficult to find uh, <laughs> real world impact that you can have as a result of that. So I think we're kind of well positioned to be doing that. But, you know, the most important, you know, way, the, the way in which impact is most important is just that we want to keep having an impact in the real world. So we, we're not interested in doing 
philosophy for philosophy's sake, mm -hmm. just because it's interesting. We want what we do to actually uh, make a difference in people's lives. So we want to carry on doing that, really. Um, and that's it. Yeah. So Excellent. That's it. Well, I think I think what, what better ambition can you have <laughs> than making a difference in people's lives? I think that's a great way to uh, to end it. So thanks, Jim. It's been a really good conversation. Thanks, Kevin. It's been a pleasure. Cheers. OK, bye. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Getting Technology Right, Ethics and Technology podcast with Dr. Kevin Macknish, part of the ITSP Magazine Podcast Network. If you learned something new and this conversation made you think, then add this show to your favorite podcast player, subscribe to the ITSP Magazine YouTube channel, and share the ITSP Magazine Podcast Network with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to connect your brand to our conversations and our audience, visit itspmagazine.com to learn how to sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey.